Acts 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Thank you, Carla. One of the ways that we worship God here at DFBC is through the reading and preaching of Scripture. And that is because we believe that this is the words of God for us. Now, when we talk about the Bible, we talk about the Bible having two authors. The big A author, God, who inspired the text, but also a little A author, the human being who wrote the words in very human words. And so what we end up with is a book that has exactly the words and all the words that God wants us to have mediated to us through a Holy Spirit-inspired human being with their own style and vocabulary. This Bible tells us about God, about us, about how we got here, why we are here, what went wrong, and how it's all being fixed. And it's a message of good news. It's also a book that's full of different kinds of literature, different genres, from stories to poetry to prophecy to gospel and apocalypse. All of it formed together into a grand narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and future fulfillment, and all of it pointing us towards Jesus. 
Well, this is a book that's also got letters, written correspondence between people and groups of people. Email, if you like, just from a time before there were ever any computers. Today, we're going to look at one of those letters that was written by the Apostle Paul, perhaps with the help of a couple of his ministry partners. Paul wrote many of the letters that we find in the New Testament, but the one we're going to look at is one of his first, maybe even the very first one that he wrote. Paul wrote letters to individuals, sometimes he wrote to churches. This morning, we are going to start a series on the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, letters that we know as First and Second Thessalonians in our Bible. And I'm going to begin our series by reading this letter in its entirety to you this morning. And I'm going to do that for two reasons. First, because we rarely consume Scripture this way. Usually we get it just a few verses, maybe a couple of chapters at a time. And this is actually unfortunate because many parts of the Bible are best consumed, are intended to be consumed in large chunks and not just fragmented pieces like we sometimes do. But the other reason I want to read it for you this way is because it is the best way to let you experience it like those who first received it. See, none of them would have had a written copy of this letter, and it's very likely that none of them would have gotten to read it for themselves. Instead, they would have gathered, kind of like we are this morning, and it would have been read to them as I'm going to do so this morning. But to do this, I need your help. I need you to use your imagination just a bit. Because I want you to pretend that you are part of the first century church in Thessalonica. And to help you with your imagination, I'm going to begin by taking a few minutes to tell you about who you are and what has been happening of late. So you are a Christian living in Thessalonica. The year is about 50 AD. We're about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now this might look like a church building that we're meeting in, but it's actually not. Instead, this is someone's home, likely one of the wealthier members of the church. Maybe it's Jason's house. I don't mean Jason Brazel. A different Jason, we'll get to him in a minute. You might be Jewish, but probably not. Most likely you are Greek, but you might also be from one of the many other people groups that inhabit this multi-ethnic city, the city of Thessalonica. Now yours is a very large and proud city. It boasts a population of over 100,000 people. In fact, it's even the capital of Macedonia, an important Roman province. In your city, it's located on one of the best natural harbors in the northern Aegean. It's also the meeting place of four important roads which you can take anywhere into the Roman Empire. And this means that your city is prosperous. The land is fertile and blessed with abundant rain, fish and um, 
forested mountains, their mines of gold and silver, copper, iron, and lead. But perhaps even more importantly, for about the last hundred years, Rome has designated Thessalonica a free city because of its historic allegiance to the Roman emperor. And so this gives your city a measure of autonomy and self-rule that's not granted to many of the other cities in the Roman Empire. Worship is worship of the gods is an important part of daily life in your city. As you move about its busy streets, you see temples and shrines to more than a dozen different gods. But as you watch your neighbors worship, you can see that much of their worship is transactional rather than based on any sense of real love and devotion. For them, it's basically if we do this for the gods, then maybe they will do these things for us. Because few of your neighbors consider their gods to be inherently good. Because they know, they believe that these gods are just as likely to bring disaster as blessing, depending on their mood. And then, very importantly, there is the imperial cult, the worship of the Roman emperor. See, your city, Thessalonica, enjoys great benefit from her privileged relationship with Rome. And demonstrations of your ongoing loyalty to him is expected through your worship of him. And so any threat to this special relationship that your city has is taken very seriously and is often treated harshly. And in Thessalonica, worship is not just religious, it is also very political in all part, in parts of all aspects of civic life. And that means that this is not an easy place to be a monotheist, one who worships only Yahweh, the God of the Jews, and of course his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived and died and rose again. But let's get back to you and what has led to you being here today. For all of you here this morning, your commitment to Jesus is relatively new, less than a year old. For many of you, it's only been a few months, maybe even just a few weeks. But your hearts and your minds have been captured by the message of Jesus, and you want to know more. Yet at the same time, you are painfully aware that there is so much that you still don't know, and even more that you don't yet fully understand. And here is the reason why. All of this started with the arrival of a Jew named Paul. Traveling with him to your city were others, including two men by the name of Silas and Timothy. They'd come from Antioch, sent out by the church there to spread the good news about Jesus across the Roman Empire. And when they arrived in your city in Thessalonica, they brought their message to the Jewish synagogue first. Now, you have since learned that this is Paul's regular strategy. And it was actually there that some of you, including even some of you Greeks, first got to meet Paul. Well, his message was about Messiah, about the great rescuer king that God had long promised to send to his specially chosen people, the Jews. And at first, Paul's instructions seemed like pretty standard Jewish teaching. See, many of the Jewish prophets 
had spoken of Messiah. And so his promised coming was regularly taught in synagogues everywhere. But it soon became apparent that Paul's take on Messiah was a little different. For one, Paul claimed that Messiah had already come. He claimed Messiah is a man named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, killed in Jerusalem, and then raised back to life again by God the Father. And he was even able to show convincingly from your prophets, from the prophets, that all of this suffering, this death, even this resurrection had actually been predicted by them. But Paul didn't even stop there. See, Paul also claimed that Jesus is the Son of God, as divine as he is human. And following his resurrection, Paul claimed that Jesus had ascended to his throne in heaven. But not before promising that one day he was going to come back to finally and forever fix all that's broken in this world. And he told them that until that day, which Paul called the day of the Lord, all of his followers were supposed to spread his message and his mission everywhere. And not just to the Jews, but to everyone. Some of you remember this teaching, it caused quite the stir. I mean, the implications of what he was saying, they're profound. If Messiah had come, if he had lived and died and rose again, you knew that this changes everything. You're excited. You were excited by this good news. And there was something about this message of Jesus that captured your heart in a way that only true things are able to do. And so you believed. But of course, not everyone responded like you did. After three weeks in the synagogue, the leaders there finally cut Paul off. So expelled from the synagogue, Paul was forced to continue his teaching elsewhere. But you and a growing number of others followed him eager to learn all that you could from him. In fact, it was at this point that some of you this morning, who are here this morning, joined this little band of believers. And this was actually the start of your church, the church in Thessalonica. And these were truly amazing days. God was clearly doing something new, something special, something powerful here in your city. But of course, these good times didn't last very long. Because those who had kicked Paul and the rest of you out of the synagogue, they were quite jealous of the response that Paul was getting from this message about Jesus. And they knew exactly how to disrupt it. They went to the marketplace where they recruited some troublemakers and actually got them to cause a riot and then put the blame for all of this on Paul. And when this mob went to Jason's house where Paul and Silas had been staying, Paul and Silas, thankfully, were not there at that time. 
But Jason, and, and I think even a couple of you who, were, who are here this morning, you were taken by that mob and dragged before the city officials. Paul and Silas, they were accused of sedition, of teaching people to follow a different king than the emperor. This was a serious charge. And of course, a perversion of what Paul had actually been teaching. But it was effective in making the city suspicious of your growing church. Now, thankfully, things did not turn out worse than they did. The city officials, in the end, only demanded of Jason and those of you who were there with him that you post a bond and simply promise not to teach against the emperor. But it was clear at this point that for Paul and Silas, for their safety, they needed to leave the city right away. And so, again, some of you who are here this morning, you helped them escape that very night, sending them south on the road to Berea. This, however, did not put an end to your troubles, nor to Paul's. See, those who had remained in the synagogue became even more entrenched in their opposition to Paul's message about Jesus. And their anger towards Paul was so great that when they heard secondhand that he'd been having success in Berea with this same message about Jesus, some of them went there and also stirred up a riot there as well. And so once again, Paul was forced to flee now to Athens. But back in Thessalonica your young church faced pressure from all sides. Those in the synagogue were firmly against you, but even more concerningly, the rest of the city now viewed you with suspicion. Your newfound love and loyalty to Jesus as the true rescuer king threatened the status quo. Your refusal to worship in the temples your lack of participation in feasts and rituals and holidays that were dedicated to other gods, your practice and teaching of a sexual ethic that was out of step with the rest of society. And while you did submit to the emperor as the ruler of the empire, you stopped worshiping him as a god. And for all of this, you suffered. You're cut off by family. You lost friends. Businesses diminished. Your neighbors looked at you with distrust. In this great multi-ethnic city, you became outsiders. Who everyone viewed with suspicion. But through it all, you stuck together, and you cared for each other. You made a new family. You formed a new community. You continued to spread the message of Jesus, and your church continued to grow. Despite all the hardships, all the difficulties, people kept responding to the message of Jesus. I mean, God was doing amazing things, but it was also really hard. 
See, Paul had taught you a lot, but his time with you had been cut unexpectedly short. And so there were still a lot of things you needed to know. There were a lot of issues that hadn't been fully addressed. And so, of course, you had questions, unanswered questions, questions like, how do we live faithfully in a sexually permissive city? And and what is the extent of responsibility that we have to each other? And what do we do about people who don't or won't work? You've taught us that Jesus is coming back. But when is that going to happen? (laughs) And what happens to the Christians who die before he comes back? And perhaps most concerningly, if Paul really cares about us this much. Why hasn't he come back to finish what he started? See, as of our gathering this morning, Paul still hasn't come back. And of course, the Jews in the synagogue are continuing to tell us it's because he's a false teacher and that really he was only ever interested in kind of stirring up controversy and taking our money. But you're pretty confident that this isn't true. Because even though Paul didn't come back, he did send Timothy back to us. And Timothy's visit, it proved to be a great blessing. He strengthened you in your faith. And as Paul's ministry partner, as his protege, he was able to teach and encourage and respond to at least some of the questions that you have had. And he also made it clear that the persecution that you are experiencing, it's not a surprise And it's definitely not a sign of God's displeasure towards you. In fact, if anything, it is evidence that you are truly following the way of Jesus. Timothy's visit was too short, of course, but he needed to get back to Paul, who by this time was in Corinth teaching and preaching there. But now... And this is the reason that we are here this morning. A letter has arrived from from Corinth. From Paul. It was carried by a merchant from Corinth, actually somebody who's there in the church in Corinth, who's a businessman who had some business here in Thessalonica. And so we are here this morning so that I can read this letter to you. What I have here. These are the words of Paul to us. So let me read them. Here's how he starts. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's us. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. That's exciting. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you This is Paul writing to us, remember? You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority But instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are also in Christ Jesus. 
And you suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And in this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters... We were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to come and see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus until he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins 
as we told you and have warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that those, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You're all looking at Sarah. As you would have in the first century when this was read. I mean, there's, yeah, I'm sure the same thing happened. But you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we belong to the day. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And the hope of salvation is a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject all kinds of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with the holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Now we've done that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. These are the words of Paul to the Thessalonian church. And they are also the words of God for his church today. We'll spend the next weeks now digging into this letter as well as all its implications for how we can live well and faithfully in our beautiful but broken world today. But to conclude our service this morning, we're going to do something that the church in Thessalonica also did, and that is to share the Lord's Supper together. And I expect that this is one of the things that Paul and Silas would have made sure to have taught the Thessalonians before they were driven from the city. And we even have a pretty good idea of what Paul's instruction to them about the Lord's Supper probably sounded like. Now, he didn't write about it in his letter to the Thessalonians, as you just heard, but Paul did write about it in his letter to the church in Corinth. And in the Corinthian letter, Paul reminds them what he had taught them when he was there with them which is significant because it would have been only a few months after he had been in Thessalonica. And so here is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, likely taught to the Thessalonians, and what God has preserved for us today. For I, I being Paul, 
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's words to the Corinthians are also God's words for us today. And every one of us who's here this morning is invited to share this table with Jesus and with the rest of us. You don't need to be a covenant member of our church. You just need to love Jesus and want to follow him. And I want you to know that as you share this meal, you're not only participating in fellowship with Jesus, although that is part of it, but you're also sharing in fellowship with all believers in all times, including the first century Thessalonians that we learned about this morning. This is something they did, and it's something that we continue until Jesus comes back again. The bread and the cracker, the bread on the table, the cracker that you're going to receive in a moment, they represent the body of Christ, which was nailed to the cross for our sins in our place. The cup, the juice that you will receive in a moment, it represents the blood of Christ, which was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. So you distribute the elements, I'm going to ask you to hold on to them. Um, you're going to see that they're cups, double stack, take the full stack, um, hold on to them uh, so that we can share them together. Uh, parents, we leave it up to you to decide when your kids are old enough to understand and participate. Um, and then as we distribute them, uh, something to think about. This morning, we have learned about how God brought the gospel to the people in Thessalonica. And so as we distribute these elements, I want to invite you to spend this, these few moments just reflecting on what God has done, what God did and is doing to bring the gospel to you. Who are the people that God used? The circumstances. Maybe it was a message. Maybe it was a book. Maybe it was a podcast. Maybe it was just a conversation you had with somebody. But thank God for his faithfulness and his goodness to you, faithfulness and goodness that has brought you here this morning to be able to share this table with Jesus and with the rest of us. Ed, would you distribute with me? Did everybody get served that wanted to? We want to make sure we didn't miss anybody. Okay. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. After supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink.
Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Father, we praise and worship you as Lord over all of creation. We know from your word that you created us to represent you and to rule with you, yet we did not remain loyal to you. Because rather than trusting in your good commands, we so often believe that we know better than you how best to live in this world. We thank you for not giving up on us and instead sending your son Jesus to be the true deliverer that this world needs. And Jesus, we thank you for becoming one of us and entering into this mess that we have made so that you could show us how we are supposed to live and then die for all the times and places and circumstances in which we don't. And we pledge our love and loyalty to you as the true rescuer king that we all need and long for. Holy Spirit, we ask you to continue your good work in us, exposing our wrong and mistaken ideas about how best to live in this world. Keep reminding us that your ways are best and that with you in us, we have all that we need in order to live well and faithfully. But continue to transform our hearts and our minds and our hands so that we may become more and more the agents of grace and gospel in all of the places that you send us into this beautiful and broken world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.